Let's look at Jonah chapter 3. Um, we're going to start, we're going to pick up with the end of chapter 2 where we were last week. Uh, Jonah is in the belly of the fish at the end of chapter 2, and he is praying a prayer of repentance. And so we read this in his prayer at the end of chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then we get into chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A visit required three days. And so on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God remains forever. If I'm honest, and I think if you're honest, sometimes there is this confusing mixture within our hearts of both faithfulness and then faithlessness that we experience and we really don't know what to do with it. It coexists sometimes in the heart of a Christian. And as a college pastor for 10 years with Campus Outreach and now 10 years uh, as a pastor in a local church, I have seen that dynamic of faithfulness and faithlessness at play in my heart very often and in people around me as Christians. And oftentimes, our response to that is we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to make of it. And so the reality of that tension that play in our hearts is sometimes underestimated, it's ignored, and sometimes it's even denied that that's happening for us. But Jonah chapter 3 will not let us get away with that. In fact, the entire book of Jonah was written to confront that reality in the hearts of God's people in Israel. What we've just seen from Jonah is that in this one moment inside the fish, He is doing radical repentance, declaring salvation comes from the Lord. And then in just a few short days, Jonah will be outside the city pouting and angry that God has actually brought that salvation to the people of Nineveh. What is going on inside the heart of this man? Are you for God or are you against God? And so when we started this series, I sort of introduced you to 
a 20th century Jonah when I told you the story about Corey Tinboom. She was this woman who in 1947 returned to Munich, Germany to preach the gospel to the very people who had been responsible for killing her family in a concentration camp. And so now in post-war Germany, she was in the basement of a church and she recognized a soldier from the very concentration camp that she was in coming forward. And when he got in front of her, she said she froze and he said to her, I have asked the Lord Jesus and found faith in him for the forgiveness of my sins. But I'm standing before you now asking that you would take my hand and offer your forgiveness to me as well. And she said that in that moment her blood ran cold and she shoved her hands into her purse and into her pants pocket. And she thought, does this man really expect me to forgive him for all that he's done to me? That's where Jonah is. He is looking face to face with his enemies. He is fighting this fusion inside of him of faithfulness and faithlessness. And I want to ask you directly this morning, are you willing to face that within you? Are you willing to confront the reality? Because if you are a Christian, then we know that we are called to go to some of the darkest places and to some of the darkest people on planet earth. And at the same time, We are called to confront the darkest places in this person, in our own heart, with the very same truth of the gospel. And so the question that Jonah asks in chapter 3 is, are you willing? And we need to ask God that he would cause us to be willing this morning as we hear from his word. So let's pray. Father, it is a scary thing to look into our hearts and see how faithfulness and faithlessness converge together too often. And we long for your word and your spirit and the hope of the gospel to make an impact once again in those places that we would be drawn into fellowship with you and that your faithfulness would cover over all of our faithlessness. And God, that you would move us out in mission with a heart that loves what you're up to in the world, even when it's hard, and even in the places that are darkest. So come this morning, confront, convict the places of hard-heartedness, and help us to be useful and ready and able and eager to go. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I want you to see, first of all, that Jonah is inviting us to observe the half-heartedness the half-hearted obedience of his servant. And we see this right off the bat in the very first verse. We see Jonah's half-heartedness. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is God repeating himself. Now, you as parents are probably familiar. Maybe your own parents said this to you. But how many times have you heard the phrase, don't make me say it again? First-time obedience. My kids can't stand that phrase anymore. I'm pretty sure they've sworn off ever using it. Obey right away. But Jonah doesn't do it. And so in that one sentence, the author has packed both what is missing in the person of Jonah and what is present in the person of God. What is missing in Jonah's life? What is missing in Jonah's life 
is a wholehearted allegiance to God and to his purposes. And what's present in God is his wholehearted advancement of his purposes towards this sinner Jonah. And they're in one verse, faithlessness and faithfulness. And God is bringing that out before us, not so that we would minimize our mediocrity, but so that we would be honest about our mediocrity, the places in our hearts where we are mediocre, and to be swift about our repentance. And so in one line, the very first verse, we're told not to deny our mediocrity, and we're told that we cannot at the same time escape his sovereign purposes being worked out in our lives. Now, I want you to remember that all of this is happening. It's working itself out as Jonah is going out in mission. It's happening at the same time. And so here's what that means for us. I want us to meditate on this for just a minute. Think about this, that the weak and incremental steps that we take of truly depending on God, even those weakest of steps in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God are his chosen tool to change the whole world. That's amazing. It means that wherever in your life that you have run out of faith and you recognize that and then you begin to turn again and hold on to Christ in faith, that those moments, are so, they're no small victory, but they are actually the way that God begins to impact the world around us and reach the world around us. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She says this about the church. We, the unwilling, led by the incompetent, have been doing the unbelievable for so long with so little. We are now ready to attempt the absolutely impossible with nothing but God and the gospel. Here's the second clue that Jonah is half-hearted. In chapter 1 and chapter 3, these chapters are essentially parallel chapters of one another. And so I want you to see the similarity in the first three verses. You'll see it on the screen. God's word in chapter 1-1 comes to Jonah, okay? And then in, in verse 2, we see the message that he is to deliver. And it's the same thing in chapter 3. So if you pull that up, you'll see that in both of those sections, chapter 1 and, and chapter 3, the same thing's happening. But when you get to verse 3, you see Jonah's response. On the one hand, in chapter 1, he ran away from the Lord. And in chapter 3, it says that he obeyed the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to understand what has happened in the midst of this. In the moment that we're at in this story, Jonah is now outside of this great fish. And he is on the shore getting ready to head to Nineveh, and it is not a pretty picture. I mean, this man, his clothes are ragged. He probably smells terrible. His skin may very well be bleached white by the stomach acid inside the fish. You think about this guy and how he smells and how he looks. This is not a buttoned up attractive preacher, right? I was worried that my shirt needed to be ironed before church today. And here's Jonah looking like this headed to Nineveh. And it reminds us of what the apostle Paul wrote. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, to nullify the things that are. He chose the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. 
and to shame the wise. And so now how does God do this? How does God take foolish and weak runners and make them powerful messengers of the gospel? How does Jonah go from in chapter 1, running away from the Lord, to chapter 3, obeying the word of the Lord? Two things happen. Number one, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a violent storm capable of ripping a boat apart comes to pass in his life. And secondly, he is thrown into the graveyard of a fish's stomach. And so last week in Jim Whittle's sermon, we heard Jonah say to the Lord, you barred me in forever. My life is ebbing away. You hurled me into the deep. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Jonah thought he was a dead man. That was it. It was over for him. And so here's the principle about half-heartedness. God's messengers can actually be so hard-heartened and so half-hearted that it might take three days near death for them to take one step in God's direction. Let's say it a little bit more positively. God is so sovereignly committed to the conversion of his people in places like Nineveh, and he is also committed to the transformation of the people who take the gospel there. It means that you and I need just as much work as those non-believers out there. Do we get that? Do we get that God is not only after the unbeliever's heart and mission? He is after the transformation of the half-hearted in this room, the reluctant Christians who've been tasked with that mission. It's hard for us to admit. But James chapter 4 says, your passions are at war within you. God knows that. He knows that right now, faithfulness and faithlessness are fighting against you and your desire, and one of them is going to win. And so our desire this morning is that we would be able to pray along with David in Psalm 119. It is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Here's the last sign that Jonah is half-hearted. It's his reaction to the impact that God's word has on Nineveh. If you read the, the text carefully in verses 4 and 5, you'll see that the first day that he's there, the first day that he's there, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the next line reads, the Ninevites believed God. Now, I want you to track with me on this for just a second. The first day that Jonah hears God's word, he runs away. The first day that the Ninevites hear from Jonah, they completely change. When, when the Ninevites hear God's word, they declare a fast and they stop eating and they obey. The only way for Jonah to obey is for him to be eaten. This is a wild story that we're facing right here. And then after this total change, which spreads throughout the entire city, Jonah's response in chapter 4. We're going to look at this more next week. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Do you know what that would be like? That would be like if Henley or Jim Whittle or Weber or myself or any of these guys that we trot up here, if we were to go on a short-term missions project to Syria or to the capital of North Korea, and Kim Jong-un, the first day that we were there, declared complete repentance. 
citywide, countrywide, national change. And they all became Christians. And that one of us came back and got in the pulpit and said, I'm so ticked off right now. I mean, I'm hacked off. Can you, you would be like, are you nuts? Do you see the half-heartedness that we're dealing with in Jonah, in God's prophet here? This is amazing. And so the point is that there is a bigger conflict, I think, that we, we're all within each of us than we're willing to admit. A bigger conflict of faithfulness and faithlessness. And so what that means is I want to challenge you and I to pray, even today, Lord Jesus, fight for me. Lord Jesus, fight in me. Lord Jesus, fight with me for faithfulness. I need it. Secondly, I want us to look at the response of the wicked, these non-believing Ninevites. It says in verse 5 that the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Hey, here's a few things I want you to see. It says that they believed. That means that this, this sort of change was internal. There was something in their belief structure that was reworking itself. Something happened inside of them. Second, it says that they declared. They made a confession. So there was this outward, external declaration. And then third, they put on sackcloth. They stopped eating, meaning it was also behavioral. Internal, external, behavioral. It means that this was substantive change. It was real. And then the king writes it into law, commanding that these terrible things that they were normally doing in the Assyrian capital would stop. And so now I want you to see two ideas that are a little bit different. And they, they really are different. But the first idea is this. On the one hand, Nineveh's response teaches us that there is no person, no people, no culture, no community that is so hard-hearted that God's word cannot thunder in and bring change. Praise God. And so that means that if you, if you are the parent who has the runaway child, if you are the weary grandparent with wandering kids, if you're the, the colleague with coworkers who think that you are crazy, if you are the student in this room whose friends disregard the gospel, if you're the spouse who goes to bed each night with someone that disdains you for your faith, then we hold on to the promises of Psalm 29, which says the Lord shakes the wilderness and breaks the cedars in two. And so God's word can go forth and shake the wilderness of a man's heart and can snap his heart in two just like that. And there can be new life. This is incredible. This is our hope, the power of God's word to thunder. Jesus even says in Luke that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. You know what Jesus is implying here? They got a better response than I'm getting as I'm preaching right now. This is substantive change. And yet what I also want you to see is something 
different. That while it's substantive, it's not thorough transformation. This passage does not teach us that what is happening in Nineveh is thorough. In fact, in about 50 years, Nineveh will, or Assyria will be back to take the northern kingdom into exile. And so what we're learning is that there is a big difference between religious repentance and true repentance. Religious repentance says that we are sorry for our behavior, for our choices and our sin because of the impact it has on us, what will happen to us. In this case, 40 more days and they'll be punished. The whole city is going to be wiped out. So it would sort of make sense to them, us that they would say, oh God, please don't do this. We want to change. I mean, it's a miracle they listen at all. But the catalyst for their repentance is that they want to be saved. They want, they want to survive. And so we need to understand that religious repentance is basically a choice to protect ourselves. But true repentance looks to Christ. We see him taking all of our punishment. And so believers, as Christians, we don't repent because of what sin will do to us. We repent because of what sin does to him. It dishonors him. It displeases him. It betrays him. And we love him. We love Christ. Religious repentance in its core is about self, whereas real repentance is about the Savior. One is self-protective, and the other is Christ-exalting. That's why Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door on the Reformation, the start of the Reformation, the first thing he says is that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has willed that the entire life of the Christian be about repentance. And Tim Keller has an article online, you should Google it and read it today, called All of Life is Repentance. And this is what he says, with real repentance, the more you see your sins, the more amazing and electrifying and precious God's grace appears to you. And the more you become aware of God's grace, and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of your sin. The sin beneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. This is what God is truly after, you see. And so what the Ninevites did was substantive. It was real. But we could say that they, they sort of just did a good thing for a bad reason. That's okay. God relents from the disaster, but what God is really after is the kind of transformation that doesn't just change my behavior to avoid difficulty, but God wants to seek a repentance that relishes in the work on the cross. And now out of love, we want to avoid sin because of its offense to him. That's where I want to get to in my heart. And I hope that's where you want to get to in your own heart. Lastly, I want to look at the far-reaching compassion of God in verses 9 and 10. The king says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. I want us to see just a couple quick things. One, who is it that gets reached? And what the king actually says here. So who is it that gets reached? We've talked about this. 
It's the wicked, awful Assyrians. This is the cruelest and most bizarrely violent group of people in antiquity. In the commentary I was reading this week, it was describing them as bloody and gory, bloodthirsty and gory. I don't think I've ever read in a commentary those two words describing an empire in the, in the Old Testament. And that's what the words were used. This was quite a group. And just before Jonah preached this, Assyria had basically held Israel hostage for about 100 years. They, they basically said, you're going to pay us or we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And now who is responding? Now they're responding to the gospel? What is this? Do you see the compassion of God and who's responding? What does that have to do with us? I want you to think about heaven for a minute. I want you to think about heaven. There are two truths that you need to know about heaven. Number one, it is an absolute party. Heaven and the new heaven and new earth is such a wild celebration of unspeakable joy. That's the first truth. But the second truth is this, that it's not primarily about you. The party is not about you first. It's about him and what honors him. And your presence there honors him in the same way that a Ninevite's presence would honor him. You see, whenever a Ninevite shows up in heaven, everybody goes, I wonder what it would have taken to transform that person into what we're seeing right now. And if Wozniki shows up in heaven, everybody says, wow, what must have happened to transform him? I imagine two angels when I get there going, is that Wozniki? Do you remember him? Wow, what did it take? Our master is so powerful. You see how our presence honors him? This is far-reaching compassion. Secondly, I want you to notice the king's words. He says, who knows? God may relent and turn from, so let us turn from our ways. And what's interesting about this is I think that his wording there should really challenge us because he's got a hold of three truths which are really hard for most of us to get a hold of as Western Christians. Number one, God is so sovereign that even though this Assyrian culture for hundreds or thousands of years have had our own way of living, our own gods, our own culture, we've thought nothing of him that in a blink, he can come and we're responsive. This king knows that. The second thing he knows is that God is attentive to his prayers. Even this treacherous, tiny, traitorous king, God might be listening to us right now. Do you believe that? That God is so sovereign that he can bring change and so attentive to you even in the humble place of life? But thirdly, we also can't leverage him. This king says, who knows? If we repent, we don't know what he'll do, but that's up to him. He's so sovereign. This isn't some magic deal. We're not pushing a button. Those nuances, you see, he could never have come up with himself. Their culture would have never brought him to those conclusions. And so what you're seeing here is this contrast. Jonah despises God for pursuing the enemy. And here's this wicked king suddenly hoping in God, praying, God, pursue your enemies. 
So two illustrations to close. What happens when you watch the news inside of your heart? What happens as you see the betrayal of God right before your eyes? Murderous, terroristic, bizarre, blood-curdling and gory. Do you get hopeless? Do you get bitter? Do you get cynical when you watch the news? I want to tell you a, a story about my friend who is a pastor. A couple years ago, there was a couple in his church that when they were in front of the television watching the news, the wife saw this terroristic group and this stuff going on, and out loud she said to her husband, I hope, I hope they go to hell. And she said that as those words came out of her mouth, in the basement of her soul, she heard a voice say to her, they are. And something clicked for her in that moment. She was broken. And less than a year later, she and her husband were on a plane leaving the U.S. to go to that very country, the one they had seen on TV, to serve in one of the darkest places in the world because they had come face to face with their hard-heartedness and the reality of God's word being powerful enough to work in anyone's life, even those people they saw on TV. That's God's compassion and how far-reaching it is into our lives and the world around us. Last thing, back to Corey. I've already told you what happened when that former soldier was in front of her and she was frozen. She said that somehow I began to extend my hand and God's grace flooded me. And I found within me the power to reach out and shake his hand. And I knew in that moment that my forgiveness of him was real. But then she said this, you would think that if I was able to forgive the person that was responsible for the death of my family, that I have it figured out now, right? That I pretty much got it? She said, no way. Wrong. And then she says this, I have countless sleepless nights now over just being able to forgive my friends. Not a Nazi officer, my friends. And here's this quote, I have learned that at 80 years of age, and this is so great, I cannot store up good feelings, of good feelings or behavior. I can only draw them freshly from God every day as I look to Jesus' work for me. I want you to know that was true for Corey, and that was true for Jonah, and that's true for each of us today, that the only hope for half-hearted Christians is fresh grace that we would daily receive the gospel, that we would daily look to him, the work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his availability to us in our spirit, even today, to draw fresh grace. That's the hope and the power for half-hearted messengers of the gospel. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive that grace from the Lord's table. Holy Spirit, come now and be with us. Jonah has helped us to face not only 
what's outside of us, but also the realities inside of us. And so we pray, fight for us, Jesus. Fight in us, Jesus. Fight with us for faithfulness. We ask that you would take repentance deep into our lives and make us more like you. We pray for our friends in our neighborhoods, at our schools, the people that we work with in our families, in the times that we've been stubborn and half-hearted towards them, that you would make us new and give us fresh grace to extend to them, even as we, your people, experience it this morning through the body and blood of Christ. Be present, we pray, this morning through these elements. In Jesus' name, amen.